Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about entertainment and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. My name is Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. And we want to just start off with some breaking news. There's a booze comment in the sky yeah. right now. Um, so, okay. <laughs> Tell me everything. <laughs> um so, uh, astronomers from the Paris Observatory saw a comet in our solar system that was spewing ethyl alcohol, which uh, we we know from alcoholic drinks. It's the same thing. Yeah, um, we're familiar with this kind of alcohol. Yeah, it's it's a good it's it's good it's solid. Um, so the comet's <laughs> called Comet Lovejoy because of course it is, <laughs> and it's spitting out the equivalent of 500 bottles of wine every second or at least it was when it was most active. Um, and nobody's ever seen that kind of alcohol ever coming from a comet, which is crazy anyway. Uh, but as cute as this finding is, um, you know, from the perspective of, lol, that comet's drunk. Um, <laughs> it's also kind of cool because it seems like um, th- that comets potentially could have the kinds of complex molecules that are necessary for life. Um, so, you know, not that there, there necessarily is, is or isn't life on a comet. Like, there, n- no one really knows. And if there is, it's probably bacterial. Um, but, um, you know, comets may have played a role in uh, the genesis of life um, here. Um, because they're super old, right? And they have, like, all of the weird materials from, like, the ancient dust and gas clouds that, like, created, mm-hmm. like, the sun and the planets and all of that stuff. Yeah. So well, where's that alcohol coming from? Is it like a f- is something being fermented on the comet? Uh, I just said comment instead of comet. Also, <laughs> which shows you which which word I say more often in my life. Don't, don't read the comments, but <laughs> don't, don't read, read the, the comments. comments. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's a good question. There are a lot of things um, that people aren't totally sure about. Um, and one of the questions, of course, is the source of the alcohol. But it does seem like if they, if if this comet can support these complex molecules, um, that that might be the case for many comets. And so, you know, in terms of like having the building blocks of life, like the complex organic molecules that eventually uh, give rise to like DNA, um, that's that's pretty exciting. Um, part of part of what's going on, I think, is that they're like they're frozen and then they heat up when they get closer to the sun, right? And that's when they start to spew stuff out. So um, part of the spewing is, is what contains the booze, right? That's, that's where that's coming from. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not totally clear to me, like, where the supply is coming from. Like, is that, like I, I would love if, like, Lovejoy, it turned out, were, like, some sort of, like, weird advanced spacecraft and there were just some aliens that were brewing in, like, the middle of the <laughs> comet. <laughs> like, had a little like a leaky mobile, still or something, but I don't think that's what's going on. It's a mobile microbrew. Yeah, you know? right. It's like a new startup. That's right. Um, the, the mobilist microbrew. <laughs> um, so wait, so where is it right now? Like, is it near anything that we are uh, familiar with or friendly with? Um, <laughs> like Mars, I guess. <laughs> that's, mm. that's also a good question. So the results are from when it was closest to the sun, um, and that was January. Um and so it's now it's now leaving, um, but I'm not sure specifically where it is. Okay, but like, is it closer to the sun than we are, or is it further away? I think it's further away now. Okay, well, um, that's a that's a that's some fun fun space news. I mean, fun space news. I feel like must be. What do you feel like when that stuff comes through? When it's like a very memeable space anecdote? Well, um, I have. It, you know, mixed feelings about it, right? Because, like, uh-huh. anything to get people interested in this stuff, which I think is really cool and can be a little bit daunting sometimes, you know, in the mm. way that people um, often are made nervous by math. I think sometimes people are made nervous by space. There's just, mm-hmm. like, uh, some sort of hangover from science education <laughs> that yeah. uh, makes people a little uncomfortable with it. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, all right, cool. Like, this is something that people will care about. And on the other hand, I can't help but feel like it's, like, the dumbest possible iteration of, <laughs> you know, of space it's news. cheap, cheap, cheap science. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh, like those, those, like, chocolate is good for you studies that we've talked about before, yeah, right? Yeah. Where, like, you know people will read it, and that's why it gets written. But at the same time, like, if you read into the study, it's like, oh, well... <laughs> 
Maybe right. not dark chocolate. Maybe you need to just have like coca powder and like not that much of it. Well, that's like the thing with this meat meat news that's like for some reason sweeping the internet today when I feel like I I feel like I've read this many times before maybe in not as dramatic language but like you phrase it correctly or you have it be a who thing um that's a WHO the World Health Organization thing who? and then suddenly <laughs> who's on who's on first who's yeah. on bacon uh uh and and then it becomes you know then it's like a a, a hot button thing that everybody feels comfortable weighing in on or making jokes about right. or um, memifying. Uh, right. Totally. Yeah. And like the thing is, like we've known that that meat uh, has carcinogenic properties for quite some time. What's new is that WHO, who has um, <laughs> basically upgraded it to being on the same level as alcohol in terms of potential carcinogen, which doesn't mean that like you necessarily need to stop eating all meat. <clears throat> Although like, hey, if you want to do that, that's also cool. Um, but then how do you get your B12s? Sidebar, I just went to the doctor and I found out I have like very low B12 vitamins because I don't eat enough red meat. Ooh. Um, so I'm not going to have cancer, but I'm going to f- be tired all the time. Like we can't win. We can't win. <laughs> and then we all die. That's all that happens. Uh, yeah, we all die. That's 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 pretty much what's up. But yeah, I mean, like people, it's been funny, like watching, you know, people react to the, the who news. I, you know, I always call it WHO because I'm a million years old and kind of boring. But like, I, um, yeah. Uh, WHO is on one, I guess you could say. <laughs> like our friend Drake. You like how I did that? Was that good? Yeah, that was perfect. Um, that was uh, that was great. I I am in debt to you for that. I'm gonna try to tee you up for something else in the near future. Um, so I mean, I don't even know what else there is to say about Drake at this point. I feel like every time there's another Drake home run, the most recent, of course, being this Hotline Bling video, which came out, which came out. I want to just do some inside baseball real quick came out the same night as the star wars trailer the most recent one um and for us it just continued to be the number one thing on our site for days and days after the star arch star wars trailer stuff um faded off like the power of drake on the internet is very very real star wars may be a thing with like you know a, a, a vaster more international fan base although you know Drizzy is up there. But, uh, well, uh, he's international. I mean, he is yeah. Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> he's North American or international <laughs> for sure. But, like, I, it's interesting, though, because everybody then has to struggle to come up with their new thing to say about Drake. And now, like, now I feel like the thing of, oh, you can't, you can't meme Drake. He memes himself. Like, that was uh, a piece by John Caramonica in the New York Times. Like, that's the big thing now. Now everybody's talking about Drake in terms of, like, his relationship to fine art because he obviously was inspired by James Terrell for the Hotline Bling video. Um, and, you know, all this other... Like, everybody's trying to find their angle, their way in to talk about Drake. And it's... I, I mean... A lot of those memes were pretty funny. I mean, I just... I, I like the um, Drake is always on the beat one. I, I might have liked that better. That one. Oh, it's great. It's like, you remember <laughs> Beyonce always on the beat where it's like her single lady stance and they just put uh-huh. whatever music behind it and it yeah, works. Yeah. yeah, they did that to Drake too. It turns out it totally works. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. But um, I feel like with Drake, that's really deliberate, right? Like, wasn't his like... I, I can't believe I know this because I just so fundamentally do not care about Drake. This is how like omnipresent <laughs> he is on the on the internet. Yeah. But like, wasn't his like part of his Meek Mill beef response like just to put up a bunch of memes that other people had made yeah, during the concert? Yeah, he did a show. Yeah, he where he just put up a bunch of memes. It's just like, you know, and I mean the whole. I feel like he's used the image of wheelchair chim- wheelchair Jimmy a bunch. Like he's just very savvy in that way, and he sort of beats. He, man- he knows to beat everybody to, like, the thing that people could use against him before they're able to do it. Um, you know, deliberately dancing kind of goofily in a video um, as opposed to trying to do any kind of, like, cool guy real dance moves is just a way to be like, look, this these are my strengths. My strength is being this dude. A goofy and dude not in a sweater. Being, yeah, and not being, uh, you know, a super slick dancer or anything. And this is, yeah. uh, this is what I have to do. I just have to show up and be myself and people will eat it up. And, like, there's something I cannot hate about that. Like, that's a great, fun presence to have in the pop culture cornucopia i i do kind of 
I feel like people can go overboard just use, being able to just use Drake like as a one word sentence yeah. as like like it's kind of <laughs> kind well, of so the way we we're talking about, about science like, exclamation point. Yeah, well that's yeah. like that's the thing. That's exactly what I was gonna say is that in the same way that like a lot of sort of like science memes don't really hold my attention, Drake doesn't totally hold my attention either, right? Like yeah. um the thing about, you know, getting to your vulnerabilities before your critics do is that it ultimately makes you much less vulnerable. And when you're not vulnerable, you're not very interesting. Like, one of the yeah. reasons why Kanye, like, one of the reasons why you're always watching Kanye is because Kanye, like, literally just cannot help himself. Like, you know yeah. he knows what the correct PR move is. And he just, yeah. like, needs to tell you that George W. Bush doesn't care about black people because that is what is on yeah. his mind. You know what I mean? Like He's so interested in going, like, I, not going there in that way. But, I mean, it is going there. But it's like he wants to see what it's like to go to the place where people have advised him not to go. Like, he just wants to see what it's like there. And... And, like, I want to see what it's like there, too. And it's interesting to see somebody who's always doing it, for better or for worse. Like, um, like Drake is a great, a, a reliable and and an appealing product in the way that, like, Taylor Swift is or something. Yep. And there's that's that's rewarding in some ways and not in other ways. So, I mean, <laughs> that's my hot take on Drake. <laughs> rewarding in some ways and not in other ways. Um, anyway, um, I do want to talk a little bit about Hotline Bling, though. Um, okay. Just as the song. Um, sure. Is it just me or is it like taking a bath in male tears, right? Like this girl's <laughs> out like having a good time. Like with some girls, ooh, he hasn't seen before. Yeah. And like, oh, she might be seeing a new dude. And, I like, mean, the I- whole song is an Instagram song. Like that, the, 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 like he, when he's talking about these girls, it's obviously like people that he's seen this girl with on Instagram. Like it's not, none of it is something that happens in face to face. It's right. all social media. This entire narrative takes place on social media. Right. But like the thing is like, she just sounds like she's having a nice time and he's oh, yeah. so upset about it. And the only way that makes sense is if he did something wrong and he knows what he did wrong and yeah. he like, he's going to whine about it anyway. But he oh, definitely that's the did Drake wrong. story, yeah. yeah. And she's not being a good girl. Like, that's, that's What's ultimately... What's his deal with good girls? Like, what... I how... mean... Oh, my God. Drake just really can't wait to be a dad. And I, I can't believe I just went to that creepy place. But, like, <laughs> that's... He really can't, though. Uh, and, yeah, I feel like there's some song... I can't remember which one it is now. It's got this weird long intro on What a Time to Be Alive. I'm totally blanking on the title of it, but where he just sort of goes into this sort of freestyle muttering about this girl, about how, like, ungrateful she was to him. And it's really kind of actually aggressive and dark, and I always skip past it because I hate that version of Drake, and that's, like, the worst version is when he is just kind of basically more or less just slut-shaming somebody or, like, I don't know. It's, 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 it's such a weird counterpoint to this cuddly persona he sort of cultivated. Right. That's, I mean, that's his whole thing, though, is that he's like, he's, there's always something I've felt very condescending about Drake's, like, love songs. The ones, like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm going to put this one out for the ladies, you know, this is for the girls. And then, like, on his other stuff, you know, like, if you don't behave in the Drake-approved way, then you're not a good girl, and Drake is going yeah. to go in. And the thing is, like... On what authority, wheelchair Jimmy, are you yeah. going to go in on? <laughs> I don't think anybody since, like, Tom Petty has had so much to say about women's behavior in their songs. Like, been so corrective about it. Like, that's always... I feel... <laughs> my joke with myself has just been, like, Tom Petty's songs are, like, an advice column for how women should act. But, like, <laughs> for a very, very, like narrow lens to make a guy like, from south or from north florida really happy here's how you behave but yeah i mean i don't know i mean i like this video i'm happy to give this video a win it's great like why not i like to see i like when people dance i like when people dance in a non-self-conscious way it makes me happy it's a great expression so sure i like that too but i just i can't help comparing it to chromio's night by night video those guys aren't dancers they learned how to dance in the video (laughs) and it's incredible it's like a room of women and one by one they all get up and dance with dave one who it turns out just is phenomenal on the floor um like whoever whoever trained him for that video did an incredible job like it's just it's a remarkable piece of dancing it's beautiful and fun to watch and it's just dancing in a warehouse you know yeah and like it doesn't have the same kind of self-consciousness or goofiness to it 
because it's so committed to the dancing. And again, it's like the difference between Drake and people who actually, you know, commit, right? Like, mm-hmm. Drake's like, okay, you think I'm goofy, so I'm going to be goofy. Whereas you have like Dave One who's like, all right, we're going to do a dance video. Let's we're going really to do a dirty dancing yeah. style. We're going to yeah. do it real, you know? No, the trying is awesome too. I love trying and I like, I like, I like being yourself. I, I, I'm happy with both of those approaches. <laughs> I like trying and I like not trying. Um, as anybody who's, no, never mind. I'm not going to complete that sentence. Um, Outtakes. Uh, so uh, let's, uh, let's talk about Theranos. Okay. Um, Speaking because, of trying and not trying. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at this, this picture of, of uh, Elizabeth Holmes where she is doing this very, uh, I mean, is there only one picture that exists of her? She's wearing her, like, Steve Jobs turtleneck. And she wears that in every picture of her. Yeah, and doing this, like, like very science exclamation point pose, like staring at a little capsule or something. Like, she's posing for the poster for Ex Machina or something like that. I mean, this is trying. This is this is a lot of trying here, but it feels like... It seems like it's not enough recently. Well, it's PR trying, which is different than actually mm-hmm. doing the science and publishing your work, which Theranos has not done. I mean, like, they may very well have done the science, but they aren't publishing their work. And they've exploited a loophole. This is like, okay, we're going to go... I went very far down a rabbit hole last week of FDA uh-huh. regulations, so please bear with me. And if I don't right. make any sense, feel free to interrupt and ask what the hell I'm talking about. But okay. There is a system um, for diagnostic testing, which is what Theranos does. They do blood tests, um, by which you don't have to get uh, a full FDA approval uh, for your test if it's only coming out of one lab. Um, so they're not these, the, the one lab tests are called laboratory developed tests. Um, they're not subject to review by the FDA necessarily because research hospitals will often modify, um, existing commercial tests, um, for whatever it is they're doing. Like, so for instance, um, if my doctor wants to run a urine sample, um, when the manufacturer of the test has only validated the equipment for serum or blood, they can do that without having to get any kind of FDA clearance. And the system has sort of been pretty quiet until now um, because, you know, research hospitals typically publish and there haven't really been companies exploiting the system. And that's changed. Theranos is one. Another one is called uh, Pathway Genomics. Uh, they were selling a, bl- a, a cancer blood test that w- they were claiming that they could um, detect uh, asymptomatic cancer. And the FDA cracked down. They sent um, a letter uh, to the company's CEO, uh, citing a number of potential violations of the law, mm-hmm. um, many of which we had pointed out in our own review of the product. <laughs> but, uh-huh. um, you know, Theranos um, is, is a remarkable case because it's had so much hype and so many breathless profiles of the CEO, um, whose name, I believe, is Elizabeth Elizabeth Holmes. Holmes. Yeah. I have that here. Um, And she seems to be doing some kind of perpetual Steve Jobs cosplay without having, Uh like, understood that, like, Steve Jobs at his first startup um, eventually had his hubris got the breast of him and he got kicked out of Apple. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, if you want to ape Steve Jobs at your first startup, that's your business, but you should know (laughs) what happens. Um, Right. But so anyway, Theranos decided that, um, you know, they were going to do the... the um, lab-developed test route, um, which has been, you know, part of this trend. And then on top of that, um, you know, they essentially said that their um, their tests don't have peers, right? Um, which is something that um, you can do under the clinical laboratory amendments. Um, no, sorry, the clinical laboratory improvement amendments, Um which means that, like, Theranos' lab has to be inspected on a regular basis, though not by FDA, but by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So you were saying that there were several companies that have kind of used these loopholes, though. Like, they're not the first ones to necessarily do this. They're not, but... no. This, is, this seems to be a trend, and it seems to be a trend of startups, and it seems to be something that people in Silicon Valley in particular like to do. Well, so what, who is this for? I think that's my biggest question about it. Like, who 
for these blood tests that, you know, only use a prick of the finger and don't have to be approved by the FDA, like, I understand it's a disruption of how, or like supposedly a disruption, but like, who is this disruption for? Who are they catering to that demand this? The idea is um, that the big companies uh, that do blood testing um, are you know, they're bloated and that you can do it cheaper and better if you have better tech, which is entirely possible. And, you know, for all I know, you know, like it could, I mean, improvements are always possible in medicine. That's something that is entirely true. Um, But the idea would be then to sort of get yourself in line for like the reimbursement money um, and payers like insurance. Um, that, that is ultimately your market. You say to the insurance companies, Hey, look, uh, you know, the, the patients, you're going to have higher patient compliance because you're going to be drawing less blood and we can do this cheaper than our standard competitors. So, you know, we're, we're cost effective in addition to being the high quality, you know, diagnostic service that you would want. That's, that's the idea. Okay. Um, and actually, it's, it's, you know, there's room for that. Like, the, you know, there are ways in which I think probably diagnostic testing could be better and easier for patients and easier for patients to understand and, like, quicker and all of those things. Totally Like something possible. that people wouldn't, uh, people would not think twice to get tested for different things because it wouldn't be as much of a hassle or as expensive. That so would be the idea. So they would be, be able to detect and, and diagnose things faster. Right. Or, um, except that, you know... Theranos only has one um, blood test that's been approved by the FDA. It's for herpes. Uh-huh. Um, and they have shown almost no data about these expansive claims they've been making in the press um, for at least a year now. Um, and the, the founder, Elizabeth Holmes, has, has in fact for- informed the New York Times last week that Theranos isn't planning to publish because they've decided they want to do you know FDA submissions first, which is even weirder to me, like as somebody who's been covering like uh, pharma and biotech for a very long time, like publishing, you know, right around your submission, like right after you've done your submission or right before it, uh, is pretty common, um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of, a lot of medicine, because that's not only is that, um, a way of showing your work, uh, which is something that the community values, but it also is a kind of marketing, right? Like if you can publish your test that shows how much better your pinprick blood test is than the kind that, that comes right out of your arm and takes a while, um, that's the sort of thing that gets doctors excited and makes them more likely to want to use your test. Like, you know, the, the study itself is, is, is a kind of, I mean, it's, I hesitate to call studies marketing, sure. but, but they can be. Um, but it's like, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a release of sorts. Right. Yeah. Um, um, so there's something, there's something very strange about all of this behavior. Um, right. In comparison to the other tests in the space. And, like, just knowing what went on with Pathway Genomics, I am very curious to see what goes on with Theranos as well. Uh, we're going to be following the story for a while. Why are they all named, like, these, like, evil sci-fi villain, like, encampments? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Theranos. Like, what does that mean? Where did that name come from? Is it Greek? Like, what's, what is Theranos Greek for? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. I, okay. I don't know. Um, like... Also, like, is it a, like, is the fear or is the thing that is, that is now being, you know, rumored, is it that it's a scam or is it like, why, what would they have to gain from getting into this business, but like not, not publishing their studies, only having one test, like what, what, what's the, is it just to get that start, that sweet startup cash and then not follow up on it? I or? Don't, well, I don't, I don't know what their end game is, right? Like it may very well right. be again that they just, they like, it might be like this totally cold, cynical thing where they looked at like the amount of money they had, the technology they had. And were like, well, we don't have enough money to get all like through the entire approval process. So let's just do this piece by piece. And while we're getting approvals, like be selling our tests. Could right. be that. Could be that they found this loophole and decided to exploit it for as long as they could until they were bought or go out of business. That's another possibility. It's something that we've seen a lot, actually, in, um, you know, uh, internet video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know what the end game is here. Like, I don't understand, you know, I don't understand the secrecy at all. It totally yeah. flies in the face of what is 
normal and accepted in the medical community. Um, and it sort of makes sense that all of their defenders are coming from the tech community because they don't work with these kinds of regulations every right. day and, and like right. don't totally, I think, understand why those regulations are in place. Like you see, like I've seen a couple of VCs defending, you know, the strategy and it's like this human health is not the same as um, your laptop. <laughs> like right. it's just not yeah you know and like the thing about like software and and hardware um you know like a gadget or like a phone is that i can see i you know i mean i might be out three hundred dollars but i can see whether or not the phone does what it's supposed to do yeah yeah but the, yeah. there's there's a level here where you don't have the same kind of like you can't just get into the operating system and see how it works you can't right. like tweak with it you can't like see what the data is you can't it's not it's not as hands-on it's not open yeah is there something a little disappointing about, I mean, it, it just feels like there's, we talk a lot about, or maybe we don't specifically, but on The Verge, we certainly talk about how there's like a lack of, of, of leadership, like female leadership in Silicon Valley. And is it disappointing to see this, you know, exception kind of proving to be maybe not, um, not successful or maybe not, uh, not the best? I have a lot of thoughts about this because she has positioned herself as being a champion for women. And if that's mm -hmm. like, if that's what a champion for women looks like, I would be happy to go without one. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, in that sense, it is disappointing. It's disappointing. Yeah. But in, in another sense, like, it feels like real progress that we can, like, that we can now be just as much of hucksters as men can. And people <laughs> will buy it. There's that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, you know, no, there's, like, completely. something to be said for that, right? Like, that you can go out, like, with your, like, Steve Jobs cosplay and talk about changing the world and have no one really question you. Like, no, that's, that's something that's, that's usually reserved for dudes. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it, this is like a perfect transition to what I wanted to talk about next, which is Project Greenlight, because, <laughs> um, you know, I've been, if anybody follows me on Twitter, you know, I've been talking about the show a lot. Um, and it's a, it, it's a, it's a doc, it's a documentary slash reality show on HBO about um, the, uh, basically Ben Affleck and Matt Damon pick one uh, uh, aspiring filmmaker to get three million dollars to make a feature film and the guy who they chose it like makes me incredibly mad all the time but uh at the same time I'm just like I would enjoy this I feel like I would enjoy it more even if it was if it, if it was a woman that was pushing for all of these strange decisions and like inadvisable things and being very stubborn about her artistic vision even when it's not necessarily advisable like I feel like we don't see that even if that even if that what that person is pushing for is is uh not the best i'd still like to see that play out yeah. with a female director um but yeah i i don't know you haven't watched this show though so i, no, I feel so, like i can only relate so much to you <laughs> right so like you're you're just gonna have to explain this a little bit more to me because like sure. project Greenlight has been running for a while and like well, i seem to right well it, it ran for three seasons it started in 2001 uh and ran for three seasons and then uh, there was a big break, and, and now it's back. And it ran on, um, I think it ran for a season on um, Bravo, okay. and now it's back on HBO. But it's still a, a Ben and Matt, uh, a Ben and Matt joint. And um, and this season in particular is, is very controversial for a number of reasons, most notably uh, the treatment of Effie Brown, who is the producer on the film that's being made. Oh, this um, is uh, ringing a bell for me, actually. So she, like, what I remember is that she had something to say about diversity. And mm -hmm. was it Matt Damon that talked right over her? Yeah. So she was basically saying that she wanted to make sure. So at the outset, the script that they're working with um, features a, a black uh, prostitute uh, in, in the and it's a comedy. Uh, and so she is just saying, like, they're looking for a director. Um, and she's just pointing out that, like, she wants to make sure that the crew and all the creative behind the film, including the director, but also, you know, everybody else involved with the film uh, is diverse enough so that, you know, the approach to this character and the treatment of this character doesn't just become a complete disaster. And um, and, you know, she's she's talking about just making sure that, you know, that the, the crew is diverse and Matt Damon says that you don't do diversity by uh, you do diversity by casting the cast, not casting the show, which basically means like you do that in front of and on screen, not behind the scenes, which she just took major exception to, obviously, because that is such a completely backwards notion. Um, 
Right. It's like um, those company like diversity reports where you look at them and you're like, oh, those numbers aren't terrible. And then you look at management, like upper management, all of the people yeah. who are making the decisions, then it's a bunch of white dudes. And yeah. you're like, hmm. <laughs> I feel like the diversity like memo didn't go all the way to the top. Yeah. Well, it's just like a way of saying, look, we put we put a black woman on screen here. So we did it like and all, all these white men can go home and pat themselves on the back. Um, so, I mean, she she pushed and like she got she got her way through as as the series progresses. Like, you know, her, her crew is very diverse. Her, you know, her editor and her first AD and um, her location scout and everything like she's got a very, very diverse crew that she puts together Um but we, you still have this director who, <laughs> I swear to God. And actually, I'm, like, kind of nervous now because I realized that I think I went to school with him for two years. Oh, um, no. I just found this out. Um, is, where I, is he from? Um, well, he lives in Manhattan now, but he went to his first two years at, uh, or no, he went all four years to Loyola Marymount University, which is where I went to school for my first two years. And also where, uh, coincidentally, Effie Brown also went, but like uh, qu- quite a quite a while earlier. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I, I left LMU because <laughs> I didn't like it um, and I didn't like the film program, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but so, so basically, once you get past the diversity issue, which... I feel like she does a really good job once we get past that discussion, just like pushing forward and just still making sure that there's really good representation on set. So that's like good for her. But um, you still have the problem of this director. And this is the fourth episode of, of Pro- or fourth season of Project Greenlight. And they have, to my knowledge, all been, um, di- all of the films have been directed by white guys. Um and so you still have this guy who um, just d- is so is allowed to exist in this this world where he can just like where his vision of his film, which seems terrible, by the way, just seems awful, is the most important thing and doesn't have to uh, doesn't have this inner sense of needing to show any gratitude or be co- cooperative with anybody else who's working for him. Um and I just, I just think, like every week, I just, I just go get into such a a tailspin about about this because I I I feel like there's such it goes so deep, um, how, and, and this applies to other areas as well, but especially on film, how how women are expected to behave versus how men are expected to behave. Um, I feel like. You still, as a woman, if you're on set, especially if you're in a position of leadership, uh, you are still uh, you still need to apologize and say thank you and it, like exert all these manners and just be very very um, diplomatic. Correct. Yeah, and and it's and that's a virtue and that's like you know how you should be on set. And meanwhile, while this guy, Jason Mann, is just like having a really bad attitude with everybody while they're like bending over backwards to get him all these crazy shots that he doesn't need. Um, never says thank you. Never, never, um, you know, says, okay, well, that's not what I wanted, but can we do this? Like not, none of that kind of easy language. Um, it's, it's always, uh, but but that's seen as a virtue, like when you they they cut to these these talking heads of like Ben Affleck or somebody saying like, well, that's what an artist should do. An artist should push for their vision, and an artist doesn't shouldn't be cooperative. Like that's well, that's that's funny because uh, <laughs> when women do that, we get punished. Yeah, and that's so exactly does that mean an happens. artist is always male? Yeah, like no, what is what that construction there? That's what it means, and it's like it. You know, it. I think that it goes beyond film because I think just. I think women in general are just socialized to have to be more cooperative in that way. And so when they get on set, the instinct is to just be like very apologetic for your mere existence on set, which is very sad and stressful. And I've been I've watched people be in that position. And I have been in a position like that, even just on student films or like really low budget indie things like that. Um I, I had a life as a, working in, in film for briefly. I had a life, the Emily Yoshida story. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I've 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 been in a situation where you feel the 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 climate on the set change because you aren't being a ray of sunshine 
necessarily mm-hmm. for everybody. And then watching uh, a male filmmaker get away with the same thing is like so it's it's watching Maddening. all this play out on this show makes my blood boil to like <laughs> an unreasonable point. Well, um, so not to not to cut you off, but I was I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about the way that that we're expected to behave and the kinds of like kindnesses we're expected to do, um, I was thinking about like service positions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, I always understood a position of intense power to be um, somebody's like assistant. You know, the person who is in charge of the calendar is the person right. you need to be the nicest to. Right. Because they own everything. Yeah, and they and, get, they keep the, sh- the, sh- the trains running. Like, right. Yeah. And, like, so to transition slightly into our interview, um, yeah. one of the things that I, I really loved about this series of books, um, the Ancillary series, it starts with Ancillary Justice. It's by um, an author named Anne Leckie. Is that it's told from the point of view of a ship that is embodied now as a person. And um, one of the things that I love about the ships, um, that the AI ships that we encounter throughout the book, is that like you can tell whether the ship likes somebody or not, even mm-hmm. though it has to do what it's told, uh, by how enthusiastically it does it. Right. So like if you're one of the ship's favorites, like your coffee is never cold, uh-huh. you know, or your tea rather, because tea is what they drink in the books. But um, you know, you're always comfortable. Like the, the thermostat is always set for you. Yeah. And like when you walk to the door, the door automatically opens. You don't even have to think about opening it. You don't have to wait, nothing. But if the ship doesn't like you, it will still do what you ask, but it'll make you ask and like you'll have to think about it and you're just going to be slightly uncomfortable all the time. Right. And like, I feel like our, like the way that you're articulating Project Greenlight is like, this is a ship that doesn't like women. Yeah. That's yeah. just going to make women a little more apologetic and have to, like, kowtow a little bit more yeah. um, in order to get anything done. It's not optimized for you, so you have to adjust to it rather than other people working to get along with you, um, which is, yeah, frustrating. But also, I mean, on the flip side, too, I mean, on Project Greenlight, she, Effie is the one who is kind of the ship in a way because she's the one who's the producer and and making sure everybody's on time and making sure that they make the studio happy and everything and getting people to point it from point a to point b so in theory you should be kissing her ass because like she's going to be the person (laughs) to make things happen for you make your life easier right but But, you know it's amazing how that doesn't come through to people yeah anyway so you've got this interview and uh and yeah anything else you wanted to say about it um, yeah, I mean, this is this is a remarkable book in a couple of ways. Um, the series is remarkable. It's remarkable um, not only because um, she's uh, Ancillary Justice, which is the first book in the series, won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Uh, so it's very serious science fiction that people really like. Yeah. Um, but also it's stylistically interesting. Um, in the, the culture that um, Leckie developed basically um, has its own language, of course, and it's got one gender neutral pronoun, which is she. Mm-hmm. So every, like you, as a reader, you presume everybody's female until you realize they're not. Um, and sometimes you're just not even sure necessarily what gender somebody is. <laughs> like, you just don't know. That's not something that's necessarily open to you. Um, which is a disorienting experience, but also a really nice way of capturing that you're dealing with an AI, right? Like yeah. all of the cultural things that we do to read gender um, are cultural and things that we, you know, learn and pick up over all this time. But you can totally see, like, why a ship AI, like, might not just just care, just might not care at all. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and there's, like, a, um, a place in the second book, I think, where some characters um, figure out that they're dealing with an AI because she is consistently misgendering people, just getting their genders wrong, just huh. wrong. <laughs> um, uh, and that's when they, they, they sort of, figure out that like gender is not totally a concern which suggests that you're not dealing with a human right um and it's it's a really interesting book it's it's set up in a way that's not totally the way you expect it to be set up and the the way that it ends is not entirely what you expect either but if you're interested in ai you're interested in turing tests or you're just interested in like space opera or experimental literature like if, if any of those things is interesting to you this book uh is is for you I think I'm. I think I'm the demo. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, this is uh, Liz talking to Anne Lucky right now. So I'm here 
uh, here, kind of, <laughs> with Anne Leckie, who is uh, the author of the Hugo Nebula and Arthur C. Clarke award-winning Ancillary Justice. Um, she is currently on a book tour for the final book in the series, Ancillary Mercy, which came out, uh, I believe, on October 6th. And I think I'm speaking to her from uh, a hotel room in Seattle. Anne, do I have that right? <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. So um, I want to talk with you a little bit about the, the series because one of the things that I love about it is, you know, obviously it's a space opera, but you've done something really interesting, uh, I think, formally, uh, in that you've chosen to tell this uh, story from the perspective of an AI, and not just any AI, but an AI that used to be a ship and now is sort of embodied in a human. So maybe you can, um, you can tell me a little bit about where sort of the seed of that idea came from, because it turns out that's very important in the third book. Yeah, I'm not, a, to be honest, 100% sure where that came from. I had the idea for a character with many bodies at once uh, quite some time ago and then started playing with that. And I think the idea of uh, the ship with a lot of human bodies attached to it became sort of an extension of that idea. And I found that really intriguing. The why, I don't know. And so it was as a result of playing with that idea that it seemed to me that this particular story really needed to be told from the point of view of the ship AI. Yeah, I mean, there's something really fascinating. Um, I kind of knew reading Ancillary Justice, because uh, I caught up, I didn't read it you know, uh, right away. I think um, Ancillary Sword was already out by the time I'd, I'd gotten to Ancillary Justice. But um, you know, it, it was one of those things where you get about three chapters in and you realize you're not, your narrator isn't human. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is a really nice way of um, sort of dealing with the Turing test, right? Like there's this whole idea from Alan Turing that anything that, that is um, indistinguishable from, from a person is a person. Um, and, and so you have this, this character, uh, Breck, who, um, am I pronouncing that right, by the way? Yeah, basically. <laughs> okay, good. Um, I've never said that aloud before. Um, but uh, Breck, who, you know... Is, a, is very much a person, but is not really a human uh, in, in some form. I mean, um, she is essentially a human body, but she has these, these implants and all of this memory from, from having been once a ship. Um, and one of the things that's also interesting about it is the way that you play with language. Um, the default pronoun is, is female, and you sort of figure out that some people are male, but <laughs> uh, Brett can't tell. And so uh, there's like this fun interplay, especially in the second book, where she seems to reveal herself as being an AI uh, because she can't tell gender in another language. Is um, what was what was sort of the line of reasoning for for working that way? What was the idea of uh, working with this single pronoun language? On on one level, I just wanted to construct a culture that genuinely did not care about gender, uh, and. I struggled for a long time in how to convey that uh, just writing in English, which, of course, it's very essential in English that you know the gender of people that you're talking about, or at least think you know the gender of the people you're talking about. Um, and the more I thought about that, the more it seemed to me that many of the things that we think of as sort of immutable, obvious indicators of people's gender aren't really. Uh, many of them are cultural signals. Um, I know I've had a lot of people say, well, obviously she would have to be really stupid not to be able to tell women have breasts and, you know, all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, but if you think about it, there are quite a few men who I know who are unambiguously uh, cis men, unambiguously masculine, who have more breast tissue than some unambiguously feminine women that I know. Uh, and it's not actually just that that you're looking at. Or the classic, the thing that everybody, if you talk to somebody off the top of their head, they'll say, well, you can tell what gender somebody is by their genitals, except we actually don't see each other's genitals for the most part, right? Um, we see the clothes that we're wearing, and we see our hairstyles, and we see the ways that we move and the way that we sort of take up space in the world. And all of those things actually are different from culture to culture. And I thought, well, if you're in the far future, and you're, you've got very far-flung humanity and you've got somebody who hasn't grown up to be concerned about what gender somebody is, going from place to place, it's going to actually be kind of puzzling to figure out how to classify people when it's socially important to do that. Um, 
uh, one of the things, for instance, I had when I had children, I had small children, tiny babies. I don't know if you've ever taken a baby to the grocery store. and seen, I have done this, yes. <laughs> and, and you see the way people react to the baby, and they don't know, if they can't figure out the gender of the baby, they don't know how to talk to your baby. Yeah, I, or you know, uh, my little brother. Um, I'm the I'm the oldest of five, and um, they're all much younger than I am. And uh, my little brother had very beautiful curly hair. Um, mm-hmm. And this was it was confusing a little bit for people sometimes that that it was a boy with this this very cute, uh, almost girly. I hesitate to say girly. It was just you know curls. You know these very pretty ringlets. But it was a boy. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, that, and that's coded feminine in our culture. My yeah. kids uh, both rejoice in extremely long eyelashes. Ah. And so my son has these big, luxurious eyelashes. And so I would put him in a onesie or something and take him to the store. And people would hesitate and become very distressed because they wanted to coo at the adorable little baby. Because, of course, my baby was adorable. Of course. And uh, But they didn't... They, couldn't figure out how to coo with the baby without knowing what gender. And I thought, that's really interesting to me. And so it was all of those thoughts that went into, all right, so I have this character who does not have a history of ever having to care about what gender somebody is. How are they going to cope in a society or multiple societies where that's really important? And actually, in further on books, uh, when she's with people who she's used to their individual cultures, she's actually much more comfortable with being able to sort out people's genders. Uh, so in S.W.O.R.D. she meets uh, folks who she's really very familiar with their home world. And so she has no trouble sorting them out. The only person she misgenders is somebody who uh, she hasn't heard spoken of with a gender attributed to them and she has not met them in person. So it's not that she can't figure out gender, but just that her set of assumptions about how you classify people is very different and the various signals that class people are different from place to place. So one of the things that, 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 that matters for though, um, I, I suppose is like also thinking about, you know, with these cultures, what does and, um, doesn't count as being taboo because hands are very taboo in the, um, the culture that, that Breck is coming from, and so gloves are always worn. And there's like this whole, I mean, it's, um, you know, a dictatorship, essentially. And there's this whole, um, uh, I guess, formal way of presenting oneself. The, the, the culture is very concerned with manners and with, with status and in, in, in a very stylized way, almost. Uh, were there certain cultures that you were thinking of when you were, when you were designing that or certain parts of you know, American culture that you sort of took to an extreme in order to create that? Not, not as such, but at the same time, I've heard the comment uh, that, for instance, the, the Rachai are much more concerned with manners and status than, say, we are. Um, but actually, I think our own culture is just as concerned with manners and status, but it's a different set of manners and a different way of looking at status. And it seems transparent to us because we live in it. It's sort of like water to a fish. Um, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't necessarily taking a particular culture and making it and turning it into that as far as the gloves and the manners and such were concerned. I just wanted something very kind of formal and stylized, as you say, because it seemed like that would be fun. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a level of fun to it. Like, um, you know, discovering why everyone's wearing gloves and why it's such a horror show when somebody uncivilized decides to show their hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, these are the, the parts of the book that are unusual and that were, for me, like the most fun. But in some ways, you know, this is very much um, a traditional space opera, right? Like there are, there are yeah. these great, like, experimental elements. But ultimately what's going on is a, a massive battle um, between different parts of a dictatorship, um, which is also, and I loved how you handled this, kind of AI as well. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you came up with, and I'm sorry if I butcher the pronunciation, Anander Minai, uh, where, where Anand- sort of, Anander? Anander Minai, yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. Where where did that character come from? Well, she's actually a really early character in the world building. She was the first of the multi-bodied characters that I thought of. Um, and the rest of the world building came out of thinking about her as a character, Uh and so, and you're right, her status is a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? Because uh, she's, you'd think she was human, maybe kind of, but how 
the only other characters that are multi-bodied like that in this universe are basically ship AIs and station AIs. Uh, although station AIs don't have all the bodies, I guess. But um, And so that does make her situation kind of ambiguous, which that kind of ambiguity is something I find intriguing. Uh, and once again, it was something that I thought was just kind of fun and had a neat effect. And I said, well, I'll, I'll just play with this as much as I can. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the things that um, I liked about your bio is that you mentioned that you've worked as a waitress and a receptionist and a rodman on a land surveying crew and a recording engineer. <laughs> um, <laughs> did, those, did those experiences in any way shape the way that you thought about this? I mean, I think there is definitely an interest in um, in sort of the nuts and bolts almost. And I, I mean, you imagine it, of course, makes sense for the ship, but there's an interest in the nuts and bolts of how things work um, and how, how an ancillary functions, um, ancillaries being part of these ships, the human-bodied parts. Um, w- did that in any way influence um, the way in which you were building this particular world? Probably, um, and certainly my time as a waitress and also as a receptionist, uh, that gives you a really interesting view of the way people behave toward people who don't have power over them. Um, when you do a lot of that customer service kind of thing, it's really interesting. And especially one of the places that I worked the longest was uh, the faculty club of the university where I went to school. And it was really interesting to see the department heads and professors and such, uh, how different they were uh, dealing with wait staff than they were dealing with students or dealing with other people in the department. Very interesting to watch. And I think that that's something that... Uh, that I was definitely thinking of when I was writing about the idea of people with more or less power uh, and the sort of strange situations you can be in when you're, you relate to different people differently on those levels. Yeah, I mean, like, one of the things that's really nice is that the ships have favorites, right? And, like, there's this sort of thing where, you know, if you're one of the ship's favorites, like, maybe the ship won't tell you, but you'll discover that your tea is always warm and everything, mm-hmm. your, your uniform is always immaculate. And all of these, all you really know is just that you're always made to be very comfortable. Whereas if the ship doesn't like you, you're always a little uncomfortable. Um, yeah, and that's definitely a waitress thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that, was, that was another thing you learn very quickly when you do those jobs, that there are customers who come in and they make your day, and you often will go an extra you know, an extra half a mile for those folks in ways that you might not for other people. Not that you're doing anything terrible to anybody else, um, but you can bet that those customers have a very different experience of the place where you're working than other folks who come in or, God forbid, the people who are really very unpleasant to deal with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's that's definitely something that I've noticed in the places where I'm a regular. Um, you know, if, mm-hmm. if, I, if I'm at a bar where, where I have what I think of as being one of my bartenders. Not that that person belongs to me, but just that this is someone with whom I have a rapport. I notice that I am never without a drink. (laughs) Yeah, and it's interesting because those are positions of very little power. Um, And yet, when you're in that position, you exercise whatever agency you can uh, even on a tiny little scale to, to sort of defend yourself or reward people who are good to you or whatever, which is something I find super interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's a big component of the book and it, it, it sort of, you, you develop it in a really nice way where you see it in the first book and you don't really realize how much it matters until the last book. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, uh, for folks who haven't read these books, but, uh, the way that the ships pick favorites really, it turns out matters a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. It turns out that those those positions, I mean, like, I, you know, having having dealt with um, a lot of receptionists and secretaries, like, those folks are incredibly powerful, and if they like you, they can make sure that there's always, you know, a window for you to see the person that, that, that is the truth. you need to see. That is the truth. Um, so, yeah, that was something that really sort of struck me reading your bio, like, oh, of course, that's where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> Um, are there any kinds of uh, books that you would say really influence this or, or, or certain writers that you feel that you're working in the tradition of? Um, I grew up reading an awful lot of science fiction. I spent many of my Saturdays in the local library. And so there are probably a lot of authors who I don't even remember reading their books. Uh, but I can say that I was a huge Andre Norton fan. 
Um, there are, in fact, one or two, not a whole lot, one or two actual hat tips to Andre Norton in the books. Um, but I think the author who's had the most obvious influence on this trilogy has been C.J. Cherry. Um, in particular, she has a very popular and long-running series. Uh, the first book is called Foreigner, and so people often just call them the Foreigner books. Uh, Folks who enjoy my trilogy will almost certainly enjoy the Foreigner books. Uh, and people who have read both, it's difficult not to see the various things where she's had a really obvious impact. And there are, once again, several deliberate nods to those books in my trilogy. I haven't read that. It sounds like something I should go check out. <laughs> oh, they're fabulous. They're so good. They're wonderful. Oh, I'm excited about it. I always love... This is actually my favorite part of author interviews is asking for reading recommendations. <laughs> Um, in, in terms of the book tour, how are things going? I mean, it, it sounds like you've had a, a kind of hectic schedule um, and you're only just getting started. Yes, this is actually the first day. I got in yesterday uh, and I did uh, an AMA on Reddit. Uh, and so the actual series of signings starts tonight. Um, so I'm giving a talk this afternoon somewhere and I'm going and signing books tonight. And then I'm like signing books in a different city every night for the next week. <laughs> that sounds both glamorous and exhausting. Yes, it's already exhausting and I've only just started. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess, is there any part of the book tour that you particularly look forward to? Is there anything that you really enjoy about it or that like sort of makes the, the grind of going from city to city worthwhile? Well, I love meeting the readers. I really do. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I like answering people's questions and just saying hi to people and seeing people's faces. Sometimes they're folks who I've seen say things on the internet, which is really nice to put a face to a name. Uh, and sometimes it's just a lot of fun to have people turn up and say, oh, hey, I read your book or, you know, I'm looking forward to reading your book. It's just I, I really enjoy that a lot. Are you? Do you see any patterns among the readers? Are you are you getting you know, any particular groups over and over again? Are there, are the people who really like this, you know, like for instance, heavily tattooed or are they um, young? No. Are they old or is it everybody? It's everybody, which kind of surprises me. Um, I mean, I'm not sure who I would guess if you, if I had to guess, I'm not sure I could name what group would be most likely to be readers of mine, but I've been really kind of surprised at how varied a group it is, which is really kind of super cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I am curious about, because often, you know, often when there is a fan culture, you, you see people um, who will dress up as, <laughs> um, as a character or who will make models or um, sometimes even bake cakes. Have you, have you seen any, anything like that in uh, touring with, um, I, guess, I guess you wouldn't have seen it with this book yet, but with the previous books, have, have you had any funny reader interactions like that? Um, there have been, mostly they've been on the internet. Uh, there have been a number of people who have drawn fan art, drawn pictures of the characters. Uh, I know that there is fan fiction, although I have not read any of it, but I think it's really amazing and fabulous that it exists. Yeah. Um, there is at least one person I know of who is actually working on a costume. Oh, wow. Although I have not seen it in person. Uh, and I think there are probably more who are thinking about it. Um, and so all of that, all of that is just so fun. I really just, I really enjoy seeing it. I try not to, if I catch sight of it, I try not to say anything about it because I don't want to mess up anybody's fun or make it feel like I'm watching over their shoulder. But mm -hmm. I just enjoy the heck out of seeing stuff like that. Um, let me ask you something else. Um, speaking of the world, um, obviously you've, you've finished this trilogy. Are you thinking of coming back to this world or going forward, you know, with the next book? Are you thinking of creating a new one? Oh, I put a lot of work into this world. I think I'm going to stay here for a little while. Um, <laughs> the next book is going to be in the same universe, but not anywhere near it in time or space. It'll be somewhere different. Of course, the universe is really big, and I can do a lot of very different things and still take advantage of all my previous construction work. Um, but I may do something different in the future if I get tired of you know sticking to this one universe. But currently, yeah, I plan to stick with what I've got so far. I, I was particularly curious about the aliens that um, sort of pop up in and out throughout the book, um, especially the Presker. The Presger? Presker. The Presker, yeah. yeah. Um, are, do you have any plans to sort of expand um, our understanding of, of those species as well? Um, probably the Gek and the Ur, but probably not the Presker. Uh, the Presker, I, I think... 
they're very mysterious and eerie and kind of creepy, but I think if I brought them on stage too much, they would lose a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, so they will probably stay off stage for a while. But the other aliens, I may well play with some more. Uh, that's actually a pretty intriguing idea to me, and it's something I've been kind of turning over in my mind. And is there anything else I should be asking you that I've not, or anything that I have overlooked? Not that I can think of. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This has been an absolute delight. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Take care and good luck with the book tour. Thank you. <laughs> that was Anne Leckie. Uh, she's an American author, of course, and she has the uh, trilogy, the Ancillary Trilogy, which begins with Ancillary Justice. Uh, and contains Ancillary Sword and Ancillary Mercy, all three of which are lovely. So if you have an interest in science fiction, you like experimental literature, or you're just you know looking for a book to read, I highly recommend this trilogy. Cool. Um, and this has been Verge ESP. Uh, if you want to subscribe to us on iTunes, you should certainly do that. Um, and you can also listen to us on SoundCloud. And what else? I'm forgetting something else. Oh, no, but you know what? People should rate us. They should give us five stars. Yeah, give us just five stars for showing up, please. <laughs> um, it's high time. <laughs> and you, of course, can follow both of us on Twitter. I am at Emily Yoshida, and Liz is at Miss Lopato, MS Lopato. Um, and we'll be back in two weeks. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye.